God One Ministries would like to humbly thank our gracious supporter, Heritage Roofing Incorporated, for today's show, and also for being our partner in taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Welcome to the Apostles' Call. We're coming to you today from Ephesians 4. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Friends, family, and partners, join us now as we journey into the Word of God. Praise God. This is Apostle R.C. Coyle of the Apostles' Call. This is the day the Lord has made, and Pastor Rufus Burton and myself are going to be rejoicing and be glad in it. Apostle R.C., it's great to be with you today. Pastor Rufus, it is amazing to have you back. We have missed you greatly. Oh, you're kind to say so. I've missed being with you all, and it is a wonderful opportunity to be able to share the gospel with you again. Did you have a great vacation? It was very nice. Yeah, thank you. The First Presbyterian Church in Martinsburg, West Virginia, your charge, missed you. We missed you at the Apostles' Call. You've been missed greatly around this community. Well, you're, you're kind to say so. I, I missed you all, too. <laughs> I'm sure that's um, an overstatement, but happy that you made it. Hey, before we start today, let's do this. We have some people that have done amazing work for many years now and really helped us. We had our Moorfield Gods in the Park while you were gone. Amazing. Uh, Brother Dan, our sound man, our um, technological genius that works with God One. Him and I were on the show last week talking about some of the things that happened there. But I just wanted to take this time this week to really thank uh, a couple of our sponsors, Heritage Roofing and Butler's Farm Market. They're two sponsors that have sponsored our radio shows. They've sponsored all of our different events for many years now. I'd just like to dedicate this show to to these families that have really worked hard in the ministry and really done a lot of good things for God One Ministries and helped us to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. And they do amazing work with us, and it's a pleasure to partner with them in sharing the gospel. Yes, and now for the most important word of the day, God's Word. So we find ourselves this morning in the 19th chapter of First Kings. Now this is in really the middle of the great Elijah and Elisha cycle in First and Second Kings. And in a, large, a lot of ways, Elijah is the archetypal prophet. He just appears, sent by the Lord. We know very little about his upbringing, his education. He arrives and proclaims the word of the Lord, and he proclaims the word of the Lord to Ahab and to Jezebel. And these are quite possibly the most corrupt kings that Israel, uh, well, king and queen that Israel will ever know. And, you know, Ahab has married this controlling woman from a pagan part of the world, and the Lord has just constantly sent wave after wave before he sends the tsunami of judgment, and Ahab and Jezebel just don't get it. So finally, there's a tremendous drought, and Elijah predicts it, and Ahab gets upset. The drought comes. At the end of the drought, 
Elijah finds himself on the top of Mount Carmel, where he defeats the prophets of Baal in a tremendous display of God's self-revelation and power. And at the end of that, Ahab sullen kind of flees from Elijah and complains to Jezebel, who promises that she will kill the prophet. And that's where we pick up in 1 Kings chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and now he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not take your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Pastor Rufus, we started teaching at our life study class at Beth Haven Baptist Church on Tuesday nights at 6.30 on these exact issues we're going to be talking about today. And it's hard for me to really comprehend the display of God's power, God's magnificent, and God's total control over the situation at Mount Carmel through Elijah, his prophet, who God had showed on multiple occasions was God's man. And Elijah calls down the power of heaven, and we see that manifest in the scriptures right before this. And then all of a sudden, it's like Elijah, the great prophet, God's powerful man, God's choice. Um, God makes it known to the, to the king, to the queen, and to everybody in between that this man is operating in the full authority and the full dominion of the Lord. And then he falls apart right after that because he's being chased by Jezebel, the queen. Right. How does this work? I, I think that's one of the things that we know in our own culture. It's even one of the places where it resonates in this passage. So here's the northern kingdom, and they've been led astray several generations before by Jeroboam. And they knew false worship and false and foreign gods, and so they forsake the Lord in some extremely basic ways. Um, you know, they believe kind of generally that there's, you know, a big God, and he's kind of for them, and he's, you know, up there someplace, but he kind of doesn't care. But there are all these other gods that you have to appease to make things right. Um, because let's face it, it's, it's fun um, to go along to the, the pagan festivals because there's dancing and there's music and there's performance art. And the best part is there's lots of sex. And so the people go and do these things because, let's face it, you know, who doesn't like a good party? Well, in the midst of this, the prophets pro continue to proclaim the will and the way of the Lord, but their numbers are diminishing because they're just simply killed off by the prophets of Baal, 
who's a strong man, who has the best parties, who's married to the best women, who can get you the best girls at the party. And so when Elijah comes and puts them to the test in chapter 18, it's great because part of what Elijah does is that he makes tremendous fun of Baal, right? because he's a false god. So here are the prophets of Baal dancing around, as you do. And we've been to these kinds of parties, and when I was in college, we called them mosh pits. I don't know what they're called today, but it's places where people violently dance and smack into each other. Well... Baal never comes, and so they get out their whips, and then they get out their swords, and they start to draw blood, and they do all these kind of self-mutilating mutilating kinds of, of things. Um, you know, They tag themselves, they mark themselves, they pierce themselves, the blood flows. But what we see is that the false gods always abuse their followers, and that's what's happening here. And so Elijah then, you know, makes fun of Baal, cry louder. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's in the privy. You know, get louder. Well, in the end, no. He's, Elijah prays a quiet prayer, and his offering is accepted. Well, the people are so overwhelmed by this display of God's glory that they then kill the prophets of Baal. What Jezebel knows is that her grip on the kingdom through Ahab entirely depends on false religion, because the Word of God would never allow her policies, would never allow her uh, to have the authority that she has in Ahab's kingdom, because she uses all of her authority to um, oppress the people, to oppress the poor, to, uh, to suppress righteousness in the life of the kingdom. And so she knows that the only thing that will return her to a place of respect in the eyes of the people is Elijah's death. And so that's why she makes this remarkable vow that she wants the gods, right? I mean, this is kind of how unbelieving she is, the gods, plural, to kill her if she hasn't killed Elijah in 24 hours. Well, she doesn't. And the way the story ends, she dies horribly. I mean, much worse probably than these prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, so the, the vow is fulfilled. But what we see is Elijah, who in this moment of tremendous victory, you know, is sure that the Lord has secured finally his will, his word, and his way in the people of Israel, and within 24 hours, it's all come to pieces. And, you know, as ministers— you know, you and I both know situations where the Lord triumphs in someone's life, and in less than 24 hours, you know, they've slid back into sin, or they've, you know, fallen away, or, you know, Satan's call is just, you know, much too pressing. And so Elijah flees in his disappointment, and really a profound depression that arises from this place of tremendous vulnerability— in the midst of his victory, because here he is, he's seen God's power, he's known the people have seen God's power, and yet, even in the face of God's power, the people step out of Jezebel's way and put him right back in the crosshairs, and it hurts, and so he flees. Pastor Rufus, this passage is especially dear to me at this point. We see this happen lots of times, and I think when people read 
books like this in the Bible and stories like specifically about Elijah or about David or about Paul or about some of the different characters within the Bible that have had their ups and downs. We start judging how they should have acted. We start judging what our thoughts would be if we were them. But it's a lot easier to be an armchair quarterback than it is to be there on the field. And I start looking at this story of Elijah, and what I start feeling is actually I get upset at myself because I see myself as Elijah on many occasions in which I work and walk and see God operate in the miraculous. And then right after those miracles manifest, the next step is that I'll walk in weakness thinking, why am I still in this position? We had over the past three months, and I didn't even realize this till the other day, we've had three major events. It started in Martinsburg, West Virginia in April, the end of April with God's in the Square. Then it moved to uh, God's in the Park, and then it moved to another God's in the Park in Moorfield, West Virginia. And during the course of those three events, we saw almost a thousand people give their life to Christ. Praise the Lord. We fed thousands of people. We saw miracles on every side. And it was an amazing work of God, all three of those events. But I have to tell you, after the last event, which was in Moorfield, which was the most arduous, it was drastically, overwhelmingly the most miraculous because there's no way we could have finished it. God had to do it all. And after that was over, I have to be candid with you, within a matter of days, I found myself falling apart. I felt like Elijah. As to where earlier I had been operating in the supernatural, I had been watching supernatural moves of God and watching God help me to function on a level that was way over my head and I wasn't capable of. And then now, after I had just witnessed that, I'm in a position where now, as we're back to business as usual, and those fiery darts are starting to hit me again, it's like I feel like falling apart. What What is it that, that did that to Elijah? What is it that does that to me, to all of us, it seems, when we've just experienced the mountaintop, and then now, all of a sudden, immediately, we're back in the valley trying to figure out how we're going to get back to the top of the mountain? Sure. A couple of things come immediately to mind. The first is that, I, you know, we're creatures of, of, of flesh. You know, we, we have bodies, and bodies get tired. Bodies get hungry. Bodies get stressed. And here's Elijah who had, you know, been supernaturally supported through the drought and the famine on, let's face it, not a lot of food. Um, has this remarkable day-long battle with the prophets of Baal, and then runs supernaturally miles uh, to get back to the capital from Mount Carmel. I mean, it's quite a distance. And so one is just kind of physical exhaustion. And so, you know, it it's particularly disheartening to, to find your life threatened in those places of exhaustion because you just don't know where to turn or where to go. You know, I find it hard to think when I'm physically exhausted. So that, that's part of it. It's just the sheer physical exhaustion. 
you know, Jesus himself went off to be alone, to rest, to pray, you know, because, you know, Jesus sleeps. I mean, he, he knew what it was um, to have a human body, and human bodies need food, need rest. The other thing that comes to mind is just the spiritual exhaustion of being that near to the presence of God. I mean, it's absolutely overpowering, and because it's overpowering, you know, it it's it's hard to stay flexible, if you will, in in that presence. Uh, so, yeah, compare it to a rubber band. I mean, you get to a point where you just can't pull it anymore. And so when you're in that kind of powerful presence of God, um, you know, rest is again required because it's just, it's more than we ever could could handle. And we need to find a place of peace and quiet rest. You know, Elijah finds it in the mountain where he's able to return to a place where he can continue to feel that peace as peace and not just kind of an overpowering uh, presence. What? I think back in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul was talking with Jesus and the Lord said unto him, my grace is sufficient for thee. And Paul said, most gladly, therefore, where I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And I think about that like after we come down off those mountaintop experiences, I think it's vital to realize, well, number one, that we're off the mountaintop. There's an anointing that's present when we see God operating in the miraculous. And whether he uses us as the vessel or whether we're just in the presence of those vessels, that anointing is strong. It's a powerful pull. It's a powerful heaviness. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but in a, in a very energized, positive way. But then when you come out from under that anointing, you're not as energized. You don't feel that power of God like you felt. It's almost like what we would refer to in the natural as adrenaline. We see times when mothers are filled with adrenaline, they can pick up a car off their baby. Or we see strong men that can do feats that we could never imagine. That adrenal flow can do great things in the natural. But in the supernatural, in the spirit, we see things that we can do spiritually when we're in the presence of the anointing of God that could never be done otherwise. And I think sometimes I myself make a mistake in thinking that, well, I'm going to function like that all the time, and I'm going to be able to function like that all the time, when really I think we learn through Elijah here that we can't, and that when we come out from under that anointing, we come out from under the presence of the miraculous, we have to be in a position where we rest, and not just physically, but also spiritually. And as I came down from that mountaintop experience myself, one of the things I noticed, Pastor Rufus, that I had to do was I had to get physical rest that maybe I didn't have to have before then that I needed now because that adrenal flow and that spiritual adrenal flow wasn't as effective daily as it had been before. And one of the ways that I was able to do that physically was, of course, to sleep. But then spiritually, you know, how do I do it spiritually? One of the things that I had to do spiritually was just like what you mentioned that Christ did every morning. I had to go back to the drawing board. 
and get back to basics and just get in the presence of God. And I'm not talking about in the presence of God during the miraculous, but in the presence of God in my prayer chamber, in my bedroom, in my alone space, just like Jesus went to the garden in the wee hours of the morning, I had to get with Jesus in the wee hours of the morning in my closet and say, Lord, refill me, refuel me, replace the things in me that I have poured out and make me into a drink offering that once again, somewhere, somehow will be poured out again. I I think that's tremendously important advice. And I think that's some of what we see Elijah attempting. But here, one of the difficult things for Elijah is that he has believed Jezebel's lie that he's alone. And this is one of the lies that persists with us still, particularly when we've done good work or the hard thing. Often when, as Christians, we've done the hard thing or witnessed to the hard truth or said the necessary thing, the first thing we hear is, you're the only one who thinks that. Everybody else thinks something else. Or, you're the only person doing that. Why do you do that? You're alone. And it's tempting to think that we really are alone, that in the whole nation, in terms of faithfulness, we're it. We're the only people trying to pour our lives out for Jesus. We're the only people seeking his will and his way. Well, that's absolutely not true, which is part of the Lord's surprise there in um, verse 9 of chapter 19, where he just says to Elijah, what are you doing here? Right? I mean, the Lord's given him something to do, and so he asks him, you know, what has, what has brought you here? And some of that is that lie, and one of the precious promises we have from Jesus is that he, he'll, he'll be with us always, which is why your advice is so well taken, to find yourself in the presence of the Lord, because no matter where you are, and you may be the only one standing up for the Word of God in that particular moment, but you are always with Jesus— whose grace is sufficient. Now, that doesn't mean you can't come to the end of your physical strength. Um, it does, however, mean that um, you know, the Lord will continue to enable you to be faithful in all times and in all places, so that when we're tempted to despair, particularly by loneliness, we know that the Lord is with us and will see us through. When you were talking there, you're talking about the time when—, when Elijah was basically saying, you know, I'm the only prophet that's serving you. I'm the only prophet that's doing it. And God's saying, no, I have many other prophets. I have hundreds of other prophets that have been hidden that are doing the same work you're doing. I think that's the devil's tool really to isolate us, don't you? It is. He takes, first of all, that space in our mind and uses that as a place of isolation in which he can distance us from the rest of the body of Christ. And then ultimately his goal is to distance us from Christ himself because we feel that, that wall of bitterness, that wall of, of kind of um, complaining and, and, and even backbiting toward the Lord build up. And then all of a sudden, our prayers aren't even breaking through because we're in a position where the wall is put up between us and Christ, between us and prayer to God himself. And that's what I think the devil wants us to do when we get in these places of coming out of the miraculous and then needing to walk back into that place where we don't isolate from God, we isolate with God 
so that we can refuel and become, again, the people that God can use to walk in the miraculous. Oh, yeah. I, I, again, that's, that's a very well-made point. Now, I think we see Jesus live this out in his example when he comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. So there's that tremendous mountaintop experience, and they come down the mountain, and immediately they're confronted by real life, right? So here's the uh, spirit that throws the boy into fires, and the disciples can't rid the boy of the spirit. And, you know, we know Christ's frustration, right? Because here's, you know, this great display of his divinity, his power, of his messianic office. And, you know, he's not down to the bottom of the hill, and his people can't do it right. But in, in love and tenderness, he frees the boy. And so when we find ourselves coming down off those mountains, right, what we need to keep in mind is that Christ is able, but part of that is knowing that we will come down off those mountains. And the other part of that is knowing that we will meet those situations that will be beyond us in the first instance. You know, that we will have to um, pray, that we will have to return to the basics, that we might continue to persist in the narrow way in comfort and in joy. Don't you think in a way— that's God moving and working at his best. Because I look at things like we're talking about today, and I put myself in the place of Elijah, not that I would be the prophet that Elijah would have been. Obviously, I would never be arrogant enough to state that. But in the place of weakness that he was at there, because I've seen that in myself after different large works that obviously God did, not us. But we were fortunate enough to be chosen and be a part of those works and I think to myself this is weakness in me this is me failing this is defeat how is it that I could be so victorious and then be so defeated it doesn't make sense when you're the strongest team you should go undefeated you should have victory after victory after victory but in the economy of God it just doesn't work that way does it no it's so different in the work that he does in us because it's the weakness in us is what he shows us under the microscope so that we know that we're not in his image yet and that we've got a ways to go. Sure. I mean, he, he always takes us from strength to strength. And part of the Christian life is moving then from strength to strength. The other part of that is that it takes time and the natural rhythms of our life. I mean, so another way to think of it is that, I mean, you can leave the Thanksgiving table and you're full. And, you know, by noon the next day, you're, you're hungry. And you think, how is it that I could be hungry? I just had this amazing feast. What, you know, what's that about? Well, lo and behold, you know, we require regular meals and regular sleep, and and that's okay. And the Christian life is lived in, you know, the peace and quietness of those times as well. And so while we hope for the mountaintops, while we live for those victories in ministry, while we look uh, to offer the gospel and bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we know that in the midst of these things, you know, we too require rest 
and exercise, peace and prayer. And so if peace and prayer are something you would like to know, if you'd like to know the peace of Christ, the Apostle R.C. and I this morning are inviting you in Christ's name to be reconciled to God. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ that you might know his peace. Amen. In business, you've got enough issues hanging over your head. Worrying about your roof shouldn't be one of them. So Heritage Roofing has you covered. Whether it's putting a new roof on right or properly inspecting and upkeeping your existing one, we know your roof from top to bottom. Did you know one out of three roofs never reach their life expectancy? And almost half of all premature roofing failures are due to poor workmanship. That's why periodic inspections and routine maintenance can increase the life of any roof system by up to 50%. We take photos before we start and after we're finished. It's like bringing the roof to you. Heritage also offers complete inspections of our work before, during, and after the project. Even if we didn't put the roof on, we're happy to do your inspection. Our job is to make sure your roof does its job. Heritage roofers, inspectors, and estimators are up to date before we ever go up on your roof. We take classes on the latest safety codes, we earn certifications, we understand the latest technology, and we know whether manufacturer's warranties are available for your roof. Our lead inspector is one of only a few hundred registered roof consultants in the entire country. And our master technicians have been recognized with three national awards. Heritage Roofing is trusted throughout the four-state area for all types of commercial roof installation and repair. From corporate and industrial to government agencies, boards of education, financial institutions, healthcare facilities, places of worship, and more. For prompt, reliable, high-quality repairs, Heritage Roofing has raised the standard. We exceed the commercial service industry standard, and we've earned our reputation as service industry leaders. Your business has to keep its eye on the bottom line. So when it comes to your roof, put us on top of it. Heritage Roofing.